while we were in a little bit of a lull right now, now is the time to shore up your EQ skills, to shore up your cultural agility, your cultural awareness, what's going on in the world outside of your own world. Really start doing some deep critical thinking. It is really important for leaders to understand their position, their power, and their privilege. Welcome to the Greenhouse Podcast and hiring for what's next. I'm Daniel Chait, CEO of Greenhouse. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about diversity in hiring. We'll touch on many issues, ranging from attracting a broader slate of candidates to reducing bias in interviewing, to building an inclusive culture, and much, much more. I recently sat down with today's guest, Rachel Williams, head of equity, inclusion, and diversity at X, the Moonshot Factory. Rachel has been in the field of recruiting since the beginning of her career, and I'm thrilled to hear her career-long insights. Hi, Rachel. Great to be here with you. Thanks for coming on the show. Hey, Dan. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. So what are some of the biggest changes that you've seen in terms of, let's say, DE&I around the corporate world? As the history of it, I think the 80s were probably the glory years for EID work, our equity work. There were a number of initiatives that were focusing in on on women, affirmative action, mm-hmm. as it will. And then, you know, in the 90s, that took a little bit of a dip as affirmative action became kind of a no-no and started to get a bad rap. And then you started to see the numbers of women in positions dwindle. What I will say is that numbers across the board dwindle, not just for women, but for people of color, for folks who are disabled. And so not having those strategic plans really hurt us. And then comes Reverend Dr. Jesse Jackson and the Rainbow Coalition about 2012. And that's when they made the call to action to the tech industry to start sharing their diversity numbers. So the transparency around representation in tech companies. And that got the conversation kind of restarted and a refocus for a lot of us. You mentioned this shift between affirmative action, and now you hear it called diversity, and then you're saying E, I, and D. What's the difference? What do these words mean? You know, people, are, <laughs> people are confused. I know. It's an alphabet soup here, isn't it? Um, you know, different companies call it something different. And I, I always joke with other EID, DNI, DI, and B leaders uh-huh. that we should just come up with one name that we're going to call ourselves. It's very confusing, even for folks who do the work. But diversity is about the representation. Equity is about access. And so when I say access, that means access and opportunity, making sure that everyone has access and opportunity equally. That's that's equity. Mm -hmm. Then there's the inclusion piece, which is the feeling of belonging. So you'll hear leaders talk about belonging and inclusion, or some real clever leaders call themselves, I'm an inclusion and diversity because inclusion is much more important. I don't really care about the order of the letters, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) So that's not the key, is not the letters order that you say them in, but the ideas behind them. The ideas behind them, especially in tech. We're at 180 characters. Uh, that's about as much as we can take. We're 15 second snaps. You know, just our attention spans go so quickly. And we're going to be changing these titles and these names every few years. But it 
is the essence of the work that's the most important. And that's making sure that all of your employees feel like they belong, that they have a voice, that they're valued, and that you're actually really combing the earth, the globe, to hire the best talent. So now here you are, you work at a moonshot factory. What? How would you describe it? I would describe X as an incubator of ideas that seek to solve the world's greatest challenges. So really, really hard problems with novel technology. So the recruiting team, their job is super, super hard because it's novel technology. We're not looking for people who have done this before, solved this problem before, maybe tangentially adjacent, but Mm -hmm. probably never done this exact work before. And so we oftentimes don't have a job description ready. We oftentimes don't have someone else in the building that's done that exact thing. I always say we're hiring unique roles every single time. No evergreen roles. It's difficult. So, okay. So you've seen a lot. You've been all over the corporate landscape. What are some of the big challenges that you've seen and that you've faced? I know you've been through some experiences trying to move the needle on diversity and on equity and on inclusion. What are some of the difficult parts of getting that that you've been through? I mentioned Reverend Dr. Jesse Jackson and Rainbow Push Coalition before because I I think it signals that this is a civil rights call to action, this work of EID in tech. And I think that's important for us to keep top of mind that this is civil rights. And we can talk about that and how it plays into what's been happening over the last few months. But I would say that while his call to action, I appreciate if I'm to critique it, and I've had this conversation with him, that it wasn't the full story. Who is in the building or who is in the company isn't giving us an accurate picture of what's actually happening to the employees. Maybe his ask should have been who's left, who's leaving, and how do the people feel? So a fuller picture than just who you're hiring and who's there. I think that's where we are now. We do know that our employees don't feel the same equally about our environments and our workplaces. People are really looking and slicing their employee engagement survey data by demographics now, which is amazing. Tell me why that matters. Don't they just have to hire more underrepresented people? Yes. Critical mass is important to the feeling of belonging and engagement for sure. But it may take us a while to get there. So what are you doing in the meantime? When we're looking at designing for hiring diversity, you should take the few voices that you have inside of your company and get the qualitative data about their experience. And that will help to inform the strategy. But in the past, we've been like, oh, there's too few, so they don't get counted. And so we're just going to focus on the majority. And I think that's just a terrible mistake. So let's get a little bit more concrete now. So you're talking about more inclusive culture and hiring practices. Hiring and culture are things that are driven by not just the HR team, not just the recruiting team, but the entire organization and the business leadership. In your experience, having worked at all kinds of companies, 
What are the things that executive leaders need to do in order to support that? What's their role in order to support DEI? It is really important for leaders to understand their position, their power, and their privilege. Once you understand that you do have power, you do have privilege, and you do have position, then as a leader, you lend it on behalf of the few. And that's going to take some deep work, some growth, some EQ work on your behalf as a leader. But I think the investment in doing so will pay off in dividends because it's not if something happens inside of your company or outside of your company, it's when something happens. And leadership is about standing up in those really, really tough moments, those difficult moments. And it takes preparation. While we were in a a little bit of a lull right now, now is the time to shore up your EQ skills, to shore up your cultural agility, your cultural awareness, what's going on in the world outside of your own world, what's happening to people of color, what's happening to people who are differently abled, what's happening to veterans, parents, really start doing some deep critical thinking. A friend of mine, I had a conversation with them a few weeks ago about George Floyd and and just all of the things that were just happening and rapid succession. And quite rightly, so many people were outraged by what happened. It was new, new news to, to a huge group of folks. And I was incensed because I'm like, um, I've known about this for a while now, being a Black woman growing up in the Bay Area. But my friend mentioned to me, he said, well, I said, well, how come they don't know the same things that I know? Mm -hmm. Like, Why is this new news? And he actually mentioned to me that even our algorithms are feeding us the information we search for. And I was like, well, what do you mean? He's like, well, you've been interested in what's happening to Black people, to women, to people who are differently abled. Your search strings are feeding you back the things that you were looking for because you were interested in them. Hmm. If you are not interested in them before this moment, your algorithms aren't serving you up the information, the news. Everyone's media and information landscape is personalized. That technology is sometimes not serving us for the good, for the greater good. It's creating more division sometimes. So I'm an executive leader. I'm listening to this podcast. Rachel Williams says, I need to do some work. I'm like, great. I like, I like work. Sounds like a, <laughs> I'm, I'm up for it. What, what do I do? Yeah. So I would say stay curious, ask why. I always think about little babies when they go through that stage or toddlers and they're like, why? And you're like, because this. And then they go, why? And you're like, because that. And you're actually going really, really deep, right? <laughs> because they keep asking the question why. So I would say if there's something that you don't know about a culture or if there's some unrest going on, ask the question why. Why are those people protesting? Read some books, go down that rabbit hole, watch documentaries, just keep being curious and keep asking why. So now you're, you're filled with a little bit more knowledge because you've been asking why. And now I would say apply what you've learned to your people systems. So immediately, I think you should get with your head of HR, the owner of the people systems or the employee experience. And really start to ask, how are people experiencing every single part of the employee life cycle? So that's, what is your employment brand? Is that speaking to everyone? If not, why not? If your recruiting 
process isn't actually panning out and you're not getting the diversity that you think you should be seeing, why not? Ask those questions. Onboarding. Are people having the same onboarding experience? Why not? Are you accounting for people who learn differently? All of that. And your performance management system. If you have some inequities at certain levels of your company, that is a sure signal that you should be asking the question of why about your performance management system and your feedback loops. Yep. I love that. Those are some great examples of what executives and leaders can do at any size company, really, to build more inclusive, more equitable hiring and, and, and culture. I'd love you to talk about the working partnership and the relationship between recruiting and business. The relationship between recruiting and leadership, it should be one of trust and vulnerability. I mean, I never was really interested in going to any other part of HR because I felt like recruiting was it. Recruiting Mm. was the fun part. Like I was giving people opportunities of a lifetime. I was changing their life with giving them an offer giving them a new position, maybe changing the way the company culture by bringing on this new person. So I just felt like the level of importance of a recruiter was outsized and really not given enough credit. We are the first friend to any employee. We are the cultural ambassador. So how we behave as recruiters is how people usually leave thinking about the company. We are the first to know when there's hiring needs and there's changes on a team. So I often knew beforehand when things would be happening, either we're downsizing or upsizing or any of that, because that's where hiring managers go first to the recruiting team. There's a concept that we have, a principle at X that I adore, which is dispassionate assessment, or we call it dispassionate passion. (laughs) And that means that you should remain passionate about your work or your product or your project, but you should be constantly questioning if you're going down the right road with it, if it's still valid today. And I think even in the recruiting world, we need to be asking ourselves, especially around EID, and don't be afraid as recruiters to ask the question about about our processes, about how we're working, and not be afraid to challenge hiring managers. I think one of the conversations that needs to be had is that recruiters should now become advisors and true business partners and help hiring managers to build teams that accelerate. Mm. And if you're looking at the total team, then the questions you are asking a hiring manager should be different than maybe in the past. I think in the past, you were handed a job description that was pre-written that I'm sure the hiring manager snagged from another posting that he or she saw. (laughs) But I think there's a rich conversation to have around who's on your team Let's look at the whole, you know, the body of the team. Let's outline what skills are missing that you actually need to get that project done. Then we'll make the job description to find that person. It's a good time for recruiters to ask, well, what perspective is missing on your team? I came from a time where my dad had a car and he, that didn't have any seatbelts. Okay. (laughs) He loved old school cars, but I think he held on to that car a little too long. 
<laughs> but because the leadership was homogenous male, that the test dummies that were created to test out the seatbelts in cars were all the size of men and modeled after men, right? And it had detrimental effects on, on women and children mm-hmm. because that perspective wasn't in the room. Now, that's a dire story, but I think recruiters now have a responsibility to ask hiring managers to challenge them and say, well, what perspective is possibly missing? Not just the skill set, but what viewpoint? So, okay. So we talked about how to empower and partner with executive leaders who are there to do the work and, and what should they be doing? How do you get people who aren't ready to do it, who are opposed or questioning or challenging DE&I? Have you ever had to work with someone like that? And, and what, what has that been like? Oh yeah, I love it. I feel I feel like those are exact people that I want to talk to. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, but I'm also the person who would run into a burning building. So there's that. <laughs> I practice what I call radical empathy. It's really understanding where a person is coming from and really accepting of where they are. And so if someone comes to me and says, you know, I really don't believe in it, I create a safe space for them to tell me why. There's some story, there's some emotion. I'm not going to try and change that person's mind. That can't happen overnight. But creating a safe space to have the discussion is a good place to start. And I have an understanding of why people don't want to lean into this work, don't believe that this work is effective, don't believe that it's even necessary. I understand how they got there. Mm. What I will say is that sometimes... I'm okay with them staying there. I'm not here to convince and turn all hearts and minds. I would say, allow me the space at least to show you, to put in some policies and some programs. And if it fails, then it fails. Then you were right. (laughs) If it makes the workplace better for your employees, for you even, because there'll be some benefits there for everybody, Mm -hmm. then, then all the better. So no harm, no foul. Don't get in my way. I wouldn't think anyone would want to get in your way. (laughs) (laughs) They usually don't. People come to this work and come to this understanding in their own time. I call it a journey. And when people say, what can I do? This is life, lifelong work. People talk about training. Like, yeah, we can do a four-hour training, but it's all the other hours after that that are most important. Can you think of times where you've had a conversation with someone who has said, Black Lives Matter is not something I agree with. And then (laughs) over time came around. Yeah. Well, this story isn't about X. So I won't say the name of the organization, but I will tell the story. So this person wasn't a huge fan, but showed up to meetings that I was having for executives. And I think that's really one of the most effective things that an EID leader could do is create a space for executives to get together to have conversations about EID. Mm. We would talk about latest research, situations that we saw happening to other companies, the data, who was coming into the company, who was leaving the company. And it would be story time with Rachel. Rachel would be telling stories from <laughs> stories from the front line because it's interesting. Leaders don't get a chance to talk with frontline employees as often, right? And so they loved story time because everybody came to me and talked to me and I would go talking to people or sit in the kitchen and just chat it up with folks. Mm -hmm. And I would tell them stories about how people were actually feeling 
in the company or things that were happening to them in the company in terms of discrimination or microaggressions. And this leader would sit in these meetings month after month, not really say a word. I would give that person a lot of credit for at least showing up. But I imagine that the person showed up primarily because of who else was in the room. So there were other influential leaders in that room. And so showing up might have given you a few brownie points or two, right? So fast forward to something happening in the tech industry, a big deal. A memo was written by a male engineer that sent shockwaves through the tech industry because it said that women were biologically ill-equipped to be engineers. Complete and total BS is what it was. But that type of thinking emerged, right? And so there was conversations being had across all companies in Silicon Valley in that time. And I remember that this leader came to me over email and was like, I would love to like have a town hall meeting about mm. this. And I was like, you? <laughs> you think you're ready? And he and I had a good chat. And all that time, he had been soaking up the conversation. Yeah. He had been soaking up the research, the data. Yeah. And so he was able to meet that moment. It wasn't until I left that he shared with me his reflections on how tough he was at the beginning and how grateful he was that he was able to meet that moment and stand up as a leader for the women who were feeling disenfranchised, who were feeling a serious case of imposter syndrome, that he needed to support them and he was able to do that. Now, on the flip side, there was another leader at this company that just never came to the meeting. Now, that's kind of like outright... I'm not a big believer in it. This leader immediately said, we need to have a training. Hurry, put together a training. Uh, uh, <laughs> I knew from all the research I have been doing that training doesn't solve all the ills. It needs right. to be a combination. It needs to be a full strategy. Right. I said, you know what? Um, I don't believe in this, but I'm here to support you. It's my job. And so if you want to have a training, we're going to have a training. He's like, yes, we're going to put the entire org through the training. So we blocked off days for people, this huge organization to go through this training. I knew it was a little bit of an experiment. I'm a social okay. psychologist major. Yep. So I was like, let's see how this plays out. And it, it did not play out well. It felt punitive to people, okay. which is all the research says that exactly what happens. People didn't understand why they needed to go through it, why they, it needed to be like so long. Women were feeling like they were the cause. It was just bad all around. But because this leader had not been in those moments of deep discussion with other leaders, hadn't read the research, didn't do any deep thinking about it in preparation for the moment, he didn't meet the moment well. Right. So that's my cautionary tale, tale of two cities within one company. And I would say a complete turnaround after that. Wow. That person started showing up to the meetings and doing the investment. And so sometimes you do have to let people come to the moment on their own through their own journey and there's no convincing conversation besides experience, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a great story. And I mean, it illustrates also how people sometimes get really twisted about the complexities of DEI and the great dramatic human stakes involved. You told a story just now about, like anything in business or in life, if you show up and pay attention and do a little bit of research and talk to people and open your ears, it's much better than if you don't. It sounds <laughs> like that's one of your big lessons. Big lesson. You know, I know that at the place you're at now at X, there's a culture of kind of asking questions and challenging other people's ideas. 
I'd love to hear any stories or success stories that you've seen as a result of that kind of inquisitiveness and that kind of open-endedness that resides in that culture. Question asking or the Socratic philosophy, I always tell people, the belief is it leads to innovation. It's about asking the right question, not having the right answer. That gets you to the innovation. And this moment has been met with a deep questioning and asking We're questioning our employee experiences. We're using the data. We're pulling in the qualitative data as well to improve and iterate on all of our people processes. So we're looking at our performance management. We're looking at our feedback loops. We're looking at our onboarding. We're looking at the employment brand and our entire recruiting processes. You need the programs. You need the policies the process change, but you also need tools. I think about it in terms of bowling. When you first start out bowling, they put the little guardrails up. So it helps to keep the ball straight and it goes down and hits a couple of pins. Well, tools are those guardrails. It's very hard to change our behavior unless there's something that helps us remember that we need to change our behavior. And I love the fact that Greenhouse, actually the tool itself, the nudges, the inclusion nudges is going to help amplify the processes and the policy changes that I'm implementing to help put those guardrails up so the diversity hiring ball can hit a couple pins. I mean, I'm not a very good bowler, so that definitely resonates with me. sounds like you're talking about how there's a role for training and for education. There's a role for ERGs and people doing work and allyship and all these things. And then at the end of the day, when the rubber hits the road, you've got an interviewer on the phone with a candidate. The doors closed. It's just the two of them. What do they say? And doing something in the moment or just remind them or ping them or help them is an important ingredient. You know, you mentioned ERGs and they are such a strong foundation for diversity, equity, and inclusion work that's often overlooked or not leveraged. Our ERGs have leaned in so much to provide us information around how we can improve and iterate on our people processes in real time. So not just through the once a year engagement survey, but we take them in as an internal focus group. What if we did this? What do you think about that? And it's a constant feedback loop because we actually are designing for them. No matter if it's one, two, 15, we're designing for them and with them in mind. So the point being that people bring their own experiences to the workplace because of who they are and the life that they've led. And as the person designing that process in a vacuum, I may not have that experience. And so by using an ERG... I can benefit from their expertise or unique experience or perspective. Yeah, exactly right. That sounds great. (laughs) You said something else uh, quite radical, which is not only using it to design your internal HR process products, but to design your product itself. Yeah. Is that a real thing? Have you, have you seen that work? What, What is that like? Yeah, that is a real thing. So 
I've always formed the ERGs around three basic concepts. One, you want to form a group. So I had lots of people like, I want to start this group. I want to start that group. Great. Here's my basic ask of you. Provide business insights as an employee resource group. Professional development. So make sure that your community gets the support that they need through workshops or and what have you. So whether that's negotiation skills or whatever the professional development is. And then the third thing is celebratory, you know, like cultural celebratory. You got to do that. So the business insights have come into play in a previous role and it comes into play at X, but we work on some, some really top secret things that I can't talk about. So I won't mention any of that work, but in a previous role, there was a feature added to the platform that supported the LGBTQ community by identifying businesses that had gender neutral restrooms. That was a hot topic in the moment, legislation being proposed around allowing transgender people to use the restrooms they identify with. Mm. And the legislation was swinging back and forth and it was very unclear and it was very uncomfortable. So the suggestion was made that we help businesses self-identify that they have a gender-neutral restroom. The LGBTQ Employee Resource Group leaned in and worked with the product team and the engineers to add that feature in five days' time. The engineers dropped everything else they were working on, worked with them on how to best create that opportunity for businesses to identify the restroom. And then what was the nomenclature around it? The product engineering team couldn't have got it done on their own without leveraging the LGBTQ employee resource group. I love that story. Thank you. Can we move on to advice? You're someone who's obviously accumulated a lot of wisdom over a storied career. What advice would you give to the talent leader listening to this about how to take the first step, how to take some initiative in diversifying their company? I would say, look at your processes, again, with a fine tooth comb and pull in a diverse group of people to help you take a look at your processes. So as a head of talent, you're so close to the work, you're so attached to the process, it may be hard for you to dispassionately assess. <laughs> so I would say, sure yourself up with a team of people who aren't afraid to give you that real feedback about their experiences with your part of the HR system. That first call with someone on your recruiting team, how the offer was delivered, look at the interviewer notes and how they're put in and just pick it apart. Don't be afraid of the work that it's probably going to create. Don't be afraid of the illumination of past mistakes. It will surely highlight. This is such an opportunity, particularly right now, while most recruiting teams aren't running as fast and furious on the hiring as we've been used to in the past. Don't be afraid of it. We haven't wanted to pull the covers back on our own processes. That's the freedom. That's what I love about working at X is that everybody is asking questions about their own work, their projects, 
that is how you get to the innovation, detaching a little bit emotionally and really thinking about the greater good. And my advice to any head of talent is, what is your goal? Is your goal diversity and representation and you don't have it? Then there's something up with your processes and you need to ask some tough questions and make some changes and get ready for when we get back to it in six months. (laughs) Perfect. Great advice. Rachel Williams, Head of Equity, Inclusion, and Diversity at X, the Moonshot Factory. Thank you so much for being with us here on the show and for uh, giving us all your wisdom. Thanks, Dan, for having me. I'm joined now, as always, by my friend, Ariel Lopez. Ariel is the founder and CEO of NAC a data-driven talent platform. Hey, Ariel. Hey, Dan. How's it going? We're talking about sourcing and how do you get out there and find diverse candidates? What's on your mind? Oh, that's my favorite thing to talk about. (laughs) (laughs) Sourcing diverse talent is top of mind for most companies. Embracing a mindset of going beyond that homogeneous culture that's been created. Recruiters have a tendency to pattern match. Recruiters have a tendency to rely on referrals because it's the easy way out, right? If you're inundated with thousands of applicants, it's really hard for you to be <laughs> cognizant of prioritizing diversity while you're, you're going through and doing your search. So I always encourage people just to get super aligned on what matters for the role. And I think Greenhouse does a, a great job of doing that. I actually was thinking of like the interview kit, right? Making sure the recruiter, the hiring manager on the same page about what it looks like for the role. And I'm looking at those non-traditional channels to find talent, I think, really has an effect on making sure that you see more diversity in your pipeline. It's certainly not enough to go to the same 10 schools over and over again, or to rely on your investor network, or, you know, your five favorite people on the engineering team. Where is the person that has that non-traditional background? Where are they located? And how do we make sure we get in touch with them? Yeah, you keep doing the same things over and over again. You're going to get the same results. You mentioned referrals before. We talked to our customer Pinterest one time about how they diversified their referrals. It was really interesting. It turns out that they showed that just by asking more times and in more different ways about employer referrals, they would get way more diverse and a much higher volume of employer referrals. So they would go to their team and they would say, hey, who are the best women that you've worked with in other engineering teams in your past? And then a week later, they would go and be like, hey, who do you know that you've worked with that's really good that's Latinx? They would just keep asking different ways of of getting at it. And just by asking in different ways, they prompted their employees to think of more ideas and fill the funnel with more talent. It was really neat. Yeah, I think me and you both come from the mindset that employees are an extension of the recruiting team. So making sure that you incorporate their feedback, their referrals, their network, ultimately makes a huge effect on who you see in your pipeline. Great stuff. Thanks as always, Ariel. Thanks, Dan. Please make sure to like, subscribe, and review the podcast and stay tuned for our next episode.